to be uh, with you today. And uh, we're going to actually be diving into a new topic this morning. Um, we're glad that really so many of you have stayed with us through Zoom during this crazy pandemic. Uh, we also really appreciate the fact that you've stayed with us uh, as we've been studying the major themes of the Old Testament. We actually started in Genesis in February of 2019. So yeah, I was trying to remember when it was that we actually started going I, through it. Yeah, I had to look it up and uh, I found out when we started. We started out with a sermon that said that all of life exists to declare the supremacy of God. And, and then we started in Genesis chapter 1 and we've been going through the story of the Old Testament. And, and I just wanted to start this morning off by saying it's, it's common for the modern day church, I think, to focus almost completely on the New Testament, especially since you know, we, we're, we are the church, and the church is emphasized from the book of Acts to the book of Revelation. Um, and in this time that we live in now, we often refer to as the church age. So I guess it's natural for us to hang out in the New Testament, but I think this journey through the Old Testament is really vital for us as a church to understand what it means to be the church and to understand the New Testament. And, and I guess to give you an illustration of what that's like, um, if I told you this morning that Lord of the Rings movies could be summed up in three statements. Um, one, absolute power destroys people. Two, we need others we can depend on. And three, doing what is right is hard and could be possible. Now, those would be three very true statements. But do you feel like you've been given all that you need to know about the approximately 11 hours and 36 minutes of extended version of the trilogy? Of course not. I mean, there's like so much more in that. There's so many other stories that play out that, that teach you about those, those main principles and that teach you um, what the author of those movies what, uh, wants you to know. And Jesus made a statement during his earthly ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and starting in verse 34. So when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked the question to test him. He said, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, now, most people I talk to are okay with that condensed version of two commands to give an understanding of the entire Old Testament, but it certainly doesn't tell the whole story. It's like summarizing the Lord of the Rings in three statements to summarize the entire Old Testament and prophets and, and the law in, in two verses, in two simple sentences. Um, there's an assumption here when Jesus is talking to these people that they understood and knew the law. One of them was a, a teacher of the law and someone who was really... Uh, well-schooled in the law. And, and so there's this understanding and this assumption that his listeners knew the law and the prophets. And the, the Jews broke down the Old Testament into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the Old Testament accounts for somewhere around 70% of our Bibles just based upon the number of words alone. And the prophets take up a huge portion of that Old Testament. So why would God take such care to record the Old Testament if it wasn't significant? And why would so much of the New Testament quote the Old Testament if it wasn't significant? And why would such a large portion of our scriptures be based upon the Old Testament? 70% of it, if it wasn't significant. I think as a church, we have to understand that the Old Testament is really the key to unlocking and understanding the New Testament. 
the Apostle Paul in his letter um, to the gathering of Jesus followers in the region of Galatia simplified it um, in, in a different way. He, he actually said that uh, all the law comes down to just loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, but, but there's some other verses that I want us to look at too. Jesus um, met with his disciples and when he met with them uh, after his ascension, uh, not sorry, not after his resurrection, he hadn't ascended yet, but just before his ascension, he ate fish with them. And when he did, he, as he was eating with them, they were concerned about what they really knew and what they didn't know and what all this meant. And in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 45, it says this. Then he said, when I was with you, and this is he being Jesus, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened his, their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus helped the disciples see that the scriptures were the key to understanding his purpose and their mission. And those scriptures that are referred to is the Old Testament that we, we call the Old Testament. Jesus referred to three different things, the law the, um, of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And the Psalms is also a phrase used to talk about the other writings. Uh, if we're to understand the depth of the gospel, we need to understand the message of the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. Um, Galatians 5.14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. It's oversimplification to help us understand the big principle, but we have to understand what that whole law is if we're really going to follow Jesus. Um, now, the last section of the Old Testament that we're going to go through um, together as a church family in this study is going to focus on the prophets. And as we do this, we're going to be talking about covenants, God's faithfulness, uh, judgment, hope. Um, and, and we're going to see that they continue to tell the story of God. And, that they'll, and, and the fact that God will someday restore things back to that garden ideal through the Messiah. And, and by understanding this concept of kingdoms, of understanding this concept of the priesthood, of, of being a chosen people, the goal is to help us understand not just the heart of God, but also the plan of God for us, uh, even today, for everybody who will follow him. And so that's what we're going to be studying as we wrap up this section on the prophets here. So, so David, why don't you kind of give us an intro on, on who are the prophets? Because it, that might be a little bit confusing to people. Yeah, so who were the prophets? What is a prophet? Um, so at, at its most basic definition, a prophet is simply someone who speaks to other people on God's behalf. So they're communicating God's will or some other message uh, that's given to them or revealed to them in some divine, supernatural way uh, from God. Now that's a, a pretty simple definition, but when, when you hear the word prophecy, what do you tend to think of? Um, I think most of us, it's especially just in our modern culture, when we hear that word prophecy, you think of some sort of prediction about what's going to happen in the future, right? Like a, like a fortune teller. Uh, well, your prophets, sometimes they talked about the future, but generally that wasn't the primary focus of the message or of their ministry. One of the, the greatest prophets of the Old Testament uh, was Moses. We talked about him, and uh, he, 
he spoke directly with God, then he communicated God's will in Egypt to Pharaoh. He led Israel on God's behalf, and he was constantly receiving and communicating God's messages and their and his instructions during their journey to the promised land. So in that sense, he was, by definition, a prophet. And he did, you know, he predicted some things, like in Egypt, he predicted that the plagues were going to happen um, right before they happened. But the point of that wasn't that he was predicting it. it. The point that he was delivering this message and kind of warning about what God was about to do, and he was acting throughout the whole Exodus period, he was acting as a liaison for God. Now, as a prophet, Moses' role was pretty specific, pretty unique. Uh, His role, the way he functioned as a prophet, was very specific to liberating the the Israelites uh, from Egypt. Uh, But it was very significant because through him, God established a very important covenant with, with Israel, that conditional covenant that we call the Mosaic Covenant because it was established through him. And many times throughout his ministry, big part of Moses' job was to try to keep Israel on track in upholding their end of that covenant agreement and to address issues of doubt and faithlessness and rebellion and times when they would just outright disobey God. And as you study the rest of the prophets who uh, function in a different way than Moses did, and they each have unique messages and ministries, but you'll find that in every case, their role is really best described as being like a covenantal whistleblower or watchdog or almost like a prosecutor in, in a covenantal courtroom, not at all fortune tellers. Uh, So when we talk about prophets as people, we're talking about people who speak um, on God's behalf and generally speaking um, to keep people in line with God's covenants with them. But it's also, uh, it's not just a category for individual people. It's also a category of literature, like Mike brought up um, when Jesus talked about, and other New Testament speakers would talk about, the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scripture, they wouldn't refer to it as the Old Testament, just that it was their scriptures. Um, it, it's this whole category. And in Christian tradition, we kind of limit the prophets to you know, the three major prophets, 12 minor prophets, and we kind of categorize things by genre. We have, you know, the poetry and narrative history and uh, prose discourse and prophecy. But that's not how the Hebrew scripture Um, or the Tanakh is what they referred to it, uh, what we call the Old Testament. That's not how it was originally organized. So I want to go into this a little bit deeper. Mike brought this up, how it was divided into three categories. Uh, So the first was, you know, the Torah. You've probably heard that word, which just means the law or the teaching. And that's what's being referred to when you see the law of Moses or Moses. Uh, It's referring to the Torah, which is the first five books. Um, and then you have the, the prophets and the writings. The writings is basically just a way of saying miscellaneous stuff that we didn't know how else to categorize, or that, that, that's their category. It's just miscellaneous writings. Uh, and that's how it was organized before the English and the, the Christian ordering that you have in your Bibles today. So you have those first five books of the Torah. And, um, the writings, those miscellaneous, those include the, the poetry, the wisdom literature, you've got stories like Esther and Ruth and Daniel that we just went through, Ezra and Nehemiah, even Chronicles is is in that category. It's kind of a a catch-all. The prophets category includes some books 
that you might be surprised at because they're ones that we would just label as historical or historical narrative. So like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, uh, all of which we just went through uh, earlier this year. Um, and then it does then include after those, the three big prophets. So the ones we call the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then you have the, what we call the minor prophets and what they referred to as the 12. And I'm sure it's just a coincidence that it's the number 12, right? So then you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Some of you have memorized that, I'm sure. So why does this matter? Why does the original uh, categorization and organization of the Tanakh matter? <sighs> it actually matters for a lot of reasons, and that's a whole other you know, sermon. We're not going to go into all of it right now. Um, but there are a couple reasons, I think, to keep it in mind as we move forward. So first of all is just that what Mike has already you know, gone over, the fact that when you see Jesus and other New Testament writers talking about the prophets or Moses and the prophets, it's a shorthand of saying that whole core of teaching of Hebrew scripture and the history of the Jewish people. And you have plenty of examples like that. But then secondly, I think, and this is kind of just reiterating Mike's point, but I think even as, you know, as preachers, we tend to just kind of skim over, even if we put, we realize that the Old Testament is is important, right? But we, we prioritize, and when, we, when we're not prioritizing the New Testament, we prioritize the history, the stories, the, the really fun narratives, and we kind of like dance around or skim over the prophets. Um, but Jewish tradition does not make this distinction. Uh, the way, you know, Jesus studied the scriptures, it was not like that. It, it lumps them all together, um, those, what, the stories that we just went through, and the prophets are all in one category with equal priority. So over the past, since February 2019, we've gone through the whole Torah, and now we've gone through, you know, the narrative from Joshua through Kings, and is also covered in, in Chronicles. Even though those books are technically in the, in the prophets category, according to the Tanakh, we haven't actually looked at any of the, the prophets themselves yet, or any of their writings. Yeah, so to, to lend credibility to uh, David's claim that we tend to dance around or skim over the prophets, um, we're going to be going through the book of Malachi today. And I've been here at North Country Fellowship Church as an elder since 1990. I have never preached on the book of Malachi. So, I mean, there, there's a good indicator that, you know, when it, when it comes to preaching material, the majority of the time I'm spending time in the New Testament and I'm looking at the letters of Paul to the churches because we are a church and we should be listening to the message to the churches. And so uh, under that mantra, I've ignored a lot of preaching on the prophets. And so uh, I've actually asked God to forgive me for that this week. And, uh, and I'm excited about what God has been revealing as we've been studying the, the Old Testament and now through the, through the prophets. So just to lend some credibility to that, as, as an elder myself, I have not been faithful to preach through the prophets. I've danced around them myself. Well, I think that's a natural tendency. You know, we, we mentioned the prophets a lot when we're talking about, we're going through the stories, just kind of saying that they were warning about the exile, you know, for hundreds of years leading up to it. And we kind of say that they were there. Um, but and even when we looked at the story of Daniel, which, you know, we had got some snapshots of the Jews' life in exile and how God was working among them. And we, we talked, we mentioned that Daniel has prophecies, but we didn't cover that part. <laughs> and I, th I think it's a natural tendency to, to not tackle prophetic 
literature because a lot of times reading what they wrote is just a very daunting task. Uh, they can be scary, they can be depressing, weird, or just, just confusing. Um, but we shouldn't be afraid to read them and we certainly should not ignore them. So yeah, we're, that's why we're going to take some time really you know, studying the prophets overall as a subject and we're going to take a couple of them uh, specifically to look through. And a few of the prophets do have some pretty crazy stories, you know, that are built into uh, that prophet's message. You know, God performed miracles through them and in some cases had them just do really bizarre things just to get his point across. But it's important to recognize the underlying purpose and the message of those stories. And in, in many cases, we really don't know hardly anything about the prophets themselves and their lives. Um, the bulk of the prophetic writing is not narrative in nature. It's more like you're reading a speech or a poem or kind of a cross between the two things. And we've, been, we've spent quite a bit of time going through the narrative. So we thought this was going to be a good time to kind of take a break from that, focus on the overall message and the role of the prophets. Uh, and we were, we, so we had started looking through some of the individual books and we realized that some of them would just take years to get through if we wanted to cover the whole thing. And some of them would just frankly be really difficult to study in, in a family-friendly environment and keep it family-friendly. So we, we decided to tackle Malachi because it's, it's just a really good archetypal example of what prophetic writing is. It speaks to a specific time, a specific context for Israel, but it carries these broad covenantal themes throughout the whole thing. So in doing so, it reflects on the whole message of the Old Testament. So, and you have the theology of God's love and justice and the unfaithful sinfulness of humans and our need for a messianic savior. <laughs> and it packs all of that into four chapters. So we figure we can probably get through that by Christmas, maybe, yeah. Christmas 2021, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, we are going to be in Malachi. If you want to get um, into Malachi, um, find your way there. Uh, but just to set up the context first a little bit, it was set around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which I know we haven't covered their stories yet, um, but it was roughly 100 years probably after the Jews began returning to Jerusalem and, and their homeland in general. We're yeah, we're jumping forward quite a bit. Uh, we, we mentioned how they were beginning to return, uh, but it, it took a while, and they've been there a while. They made it through the exile, but their lives just were still not really that great. It, life wasn't feeling like they had returned to Eden. Um, this was, it, it was like they were living a shadow of a dim reflection of the tattered remains of, of a hope fulfilled. Their hopes were not fulfilled. This was not the future they'd been looking forward to. Their understanding of the previous prophets' messages that had been, you know, for hundreds of years before, they, those prophecies weren't lining up with their current experiences and their situation. They were poor and hungry. They still didn't have their Messiah. So even though we're past the exilic period, it was still, it ended with, it was very anticlimactic. So it left them feeling disappointed and they were then filled as a result with doubt towards God. And you might have, there were probably many people just going through the motions of religion, following, you know, some of the Jewish laws and the customs. So they still felt Jewish, 
but in their hearts they had grown cold and faithless towards God. And if you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to notice a lot of the same issues show up in those, those narratives as are addressed in, in Malachi. Malachi is a direct response to this climate that Israel was facing. Uh, and it does so primarily by aiming to remind the Israelites and refocus their perspectives and their roles in their covenants that they had made with God and with each other. So if we start off by reading just the first verse, it's just a very simple and straight to the point introduction to what we're about to read. It says, uh, this is a Lexham English Bible translation. It says, an oracle, the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. So again, you know, with some prophets, we get some narrative snapshots throughout their life or you have their life stories kind of woven into their message. But Malachi is actually more typical of, you know, many of the prophets in that we have, we really have no information about the author at all. In fact, even the word Malachi, it simply means my messenger. So the word Malach is, is messenger or angel. So Malachi is just my messenger. And it's not clear whether this is actually someone's proper name or it's just a title. Um, but for lack of an alternative, we're just going to refer to this prophet as Malachi. Ultimately, we don't have information because that information doesn't matter. All that matters in this book doesn't matter who the prophet's name was. It's the message itself. And that's all that you get in the whole rest of the book after this little minimal introduction. So the point of verse 1, it, by saying that this is the word of Yahweh to Israel through my messenger, uh, the point is that everything that follows is a proclamation straight from Yahweh, God himself, through the mouth and the, the hands of the writing of his messenger. Yeah, see, I learned something there. You, you pronounce his name Malachi. My, I was brought up learning it as Malachi, the Italian prophet, but apparently that's not the case, and so I stand corrected in my theology. Um, so yes, he was a messenger, but, um, and the Lexham uses the word oracle. I struggle with the word oracle um, because, you know, it brings back too many visions to everything from gaming systems to movies when I hear oracle, and it's always this odd, weird thing. Um, the CSB uses the word pronouncement, and in the New Living Translation, we get the word message. Um, and it's an interesting word that is most commonly understood when you look at the original word there. It's understood as a burden or something that must be carried, uh, which is why the translators have had a struggle coming up with what word should they use there. Um, I think possibly using that word, which is an uncommon word um, for us to, to start out um, a speech with, uh, could be considered um, the sense that there's a heavy burden uh, that Malachi is feeling about this message, or a very heavy burden on God's heart that he needs to get out toward his people. Um, I think it can also be considered in the sense that there's been a heavy burden since the fall of man in the garden, and a burden that will be present until the Messiah will one day take it away. And you start the book with this heavy burden, and you end the book with the promise of the Messiah. And so there's a lot of different ways you could possibly go down this road with a burden, but, but we end up with this idea of it being um, a, heavy, a heavy message, not something that's light and not something that probably the prophet wanted to share. Have you ever had news that you had to share that you didn't want to? Um, and imagine going to a whole nation and declaring that there's something that's just not right. Um, and, and this book is really broken down into... Uh, a bunch of little messages, I guess. Um, the writing of Malachi seems to be in the form of a, of a legal brief. 
Malachi acts as sort of a legal arbiter who states the accusation of the people and the response of Yahweh. Um, and it's very much a courtroom environment as, as we study this. It's like, oh, you, here's the act, here's what we're claiming that you say, and you say, well, we haven't said this. How did we say this? Well, let me tell you what God says you've said. And so this back and forth arguing, and there's actually six different disputes or arguments, um, and they follow a pretty consistent pattern of God making a statement, Israel saying something defiant back, followed by God responding to that, uh, it's not a real-time conversation between God and Israel, rather the prophet laying everything out uh, to explain what the situation is. Uh, with God's statement being presented to a, really a hypothetical audience, it's the whole nation, but it's not like anybody's sitting there physically. So in verses two through five, we get this first dispute. Remember, there's six of them. We're only going to cover one of them this morning so that we can get out of here before like 8 p.m. So uh, verses two through five, here's, here's this first dispute so you can get a taste of what these are like. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? And I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have made his mountain ranges a desolation and given his inheritance to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will return and rebuild the ruins, Yahweh of hosts says this, they may build, but I will tear it down and they will be called a territory of wickedness and the people with whom Yahweh is angry forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, Yahweh is great beyond the borders of Israel. It's only four verses, but man, is there a lot packed in here. And you can see he's even going back to the things we've studied previously and bringing them up to the nation Israel. Yeah, and so this this dispute that we just read, it's it's only four verses long, but there's quite a bit packed packed in here. It starts off with Yahweh saying, I have loved you. Period. So it's just this matter of fact, absolute statement of God's love for Israel. I have loved you. It's not I have loved you except when or I have loved you, but you know, it's it's just I have loved you says Yahweh. This is an unconditional love. And if you look back at Deuteronomy, when God was establishing his covenant through Moses, you can see the idea of God choosing Israel in parallel with the idea of God loving Israel. That was a big part of that covenant. And in this, God demonstrates that his love is more than a feeling. It's, it's a choice and the expression of a committed relationship. And that's actually something that will come up later on in Malachi. And there's an interesting note. I just copied this from the Faith Life Study Bible. The, the Hebrew term for love, because there are, there's multiple different terms for, for love in Hebrew. This particular one is a technical term in ancient Near Eastern treaty and covenant texts indicating choice or election to covenant relationship. So it's back to that idea of it being kind of a legal tone, a legal setting. And yet, so we have this, this unconditional statement of God's love, and then Israel comes back with this response that just, I think, paints a whole picture of their, their attitude overall towards God at this point. And they say, how have you loved us? And if you have the NLT, it actually translates it, um, and you retort instead of just say, it says you retort, which I think is 
I think that's kind of an accurate uh, representation of the attitude that's being uh, described here. And if I were going to add some, you know, inflection, interpretive inflection to it, it'd be like, <laughs> yeah, okay, God, yeah, tell me just exactly how have you loved us? You know, it's just heavy eye roll. It's just like this really bratty, <laughs> bratty attitude. And their response is so flagrant. It's so disrespectful. Uh, and it just reveals how callous they've become to God's love. They don't love God. They don't fear God. And they feel abandoned by God. I think that's important to recognize too. I think a, a way to describe how Israel would, would have been thinking or feeling would be, you know, if you say that, but then where are all the great blessings that God has promised through his prophets? I think this is a common response of mankind though, to the perceived injustices of the world. Um, when you think about phrases that people use, like how can a loving God let innocent people die? Or if God really loves me, why would he let me suffer like this? Uh, to equate love with our circumstances is really to not understand love very well. In Israel's case, they were being chastised. That was the purpose of the exile. Um, they were being punished for their um, failure to follow God and to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength to keep the Shema. And Proverbs 3.12 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Um, in this case, the punishment that they received, the, the discipline that they received, was because of God's love, not in contrast to God's love. And it seems counterintuitive, but our, we have to realize that our faith uh, in God's word, and our, excuse me, our faith and God's word, must be the standard by which we measure God's love. Not the way we feel, not the way we interpret our circumstances. And that's really what Israel is doing here. They're going, hey, listen, you say that you love us, but have you seen our situation? Have you seen the world the way it is today? Do you understand what the temple is really like and how the walls are, are, are barely rebuilt and that we're in ruins and we're poor and we're not feeling like we're living in the land of flowing with milk and honey? Have you seen our circumstance? How can you say you love us? And I think that that human response um, is very common, uh, but we have to realize that we can't define God's love by the circumstances around us or our feelings. And that's really where, where God's going to, I think, hit them pretty hard next and say, hey, let me tell you how I've loved you. Yeah, so let's look at God's response. It's, it's interesting, I think. So to argue his point, to prove that he does love them, he goes straight to the brothers Jacob and Esau. So if you remember, Jacob and Esau uh, were Isaac's sons, Abraham's grandsons. And God chose to love Jacob. He's often even referred to as the God of Jacob. And yet, we know that Jacob was a decept uh, deceptive and sinful person. He wasn't even the firstborn to whom favor would normally have been given. Esau was the firstborn. But this just further goes to demonstrate that God loves people not based on merit, but by his choice. So, you know, verse 2 is nice. You know, he chose to love Jacob. But then verse 3 shifts then to the focus on Esau and, and Edom, which, you know, Esau's descendants became uh, to be known as the people of Edom. Uh, so they were then constantly in conflict with Israel and Judah. So in this example, you know, we have Jacob, the person, also known as Israel, the person. Uh, that's also simultaneously referring to the descendants of the nation of Israel, the descendants of, of Israel. 
In the same way Esau, he's referring to Jacob's older brother, but as well, he's referring to the whole nation of Edom. And, and God's language towards Edom is quite harsh. Uh, you know, in verse 2, it says, I have loved Jacob. Verse 3 says, Esau, I have hated. Now, I think to understand this better, just like the word love in verse 2 is one of those contractual terms, it's parallel to the word choose, uh, the word hate here. And some, um, some versions use the word reject instead uh, because it's the opposite of that word love. So it's, it's the opposite of choose. So the opposite of choose is re reject. So either way, whether it's love and hate or choose and reject, it's, it's presenting these polar opposites. Um, and both words are referring to the concept of the covenant more so than an emotional feeling type of a concept. And by the time Malachi was written, Edom was known for just their arrogance and pride, greed, violence. Uh, so God's rejection and destruction of them was not unprovoked. It was God's righteous judgment against just a treacherous and belligerent people. So it was a people that describes that there are people with whom God would be angry forever. And if you want to read more on that, you can uh, write down Jeremiah 49 if you want to read more about that, that punishment. I think also there's a whole prophet book. Was it Obadiah? Um, one of them. It, that's just the whole thing is all about Edom and against Edom. And in contrast, you know, Israel went through this exile recently, but that was only a temporary punishment. It was basically a timeout, if you will. Yet Israel really was... <laughs> Not any better than Edom when it comes to their faithfulness and their selfishness, idolatry. So neither Jacob nor Esau deserved God's favor or earned it. And yet Israel was granted it. And I think the point that God is, is making here is that Israel's forgetting that they did nothing to deserve God's love. To the contrary, they did everything to merit his rejection of them. And yet he gave them his love unfailingly. And they show no more appreciation of God or devotion or love to him than their rejected neighbors of the Edomites. Yeah, and I think too, we have to remember Jacob's story um, in Genesis 32, which we did actually cover this one. In Genesis 32, uh, Jacob is getting ready to meet Esau again. And, uh, and he's, he's nervous about it. He, he ends up being all alone in camp by himself. And a man comes up and wrestles with him all day long until the, the break of dawn. And uh, in Genesis 32, 24, it says, um, it says that. In verse 25, it says, And when, a man, when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket. And the man said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Well, your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Well, please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the name of that place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. And the sun was rising as Jacob left. and He was limping because of the injury to his hip. Um, Jacob was a wrestler, and he wrestled with God, and he wrestled with men, and God chose to bless him over that wrestling, um, and actually it was God, if you read that passage, one thing that strikes me about it is it's God who approached the man, approached Jacob. Jacob didn't go looking for a fight to wrestle with God. Uh, God came and started the wrestling match, um, 
but but that was part of his journey to be um, part of the descendants from whom God would bless all the nations of the earth. So we're going back to the Abrahamic covenant here and the promise that God made to Abraham that through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The fact that Israel is not wiped out yet, the fact that God kept them alive, that there's still this remnant of them, even living in this, this tattered dream world that David brought up earlier, it is proof of God's love because he could have and had the right to totally and utterly destroy them for their rebelliousness. And yet he chose not to. It was Jacob whose name was changed to Israel that the 12 tribes came from. And it was the descendants of Jacob that were the special people of God. It was Jacob's descendants that were to enter the promised land. And it was through Jacob that David and Solomon would come. And it was through Jacob that the Messiah would one day come and provide relief from the curse Edom would be cursed, but God's people would be blessed through the Messiah. And God made that promise, and he demonstrated his love by keeping his promise in keeping the line of Jacob alive, keeping Israel around so that he could fulfill his promise of the coming Messiah. And again, Malachi is going to refer to that at the end of his book again, but in the meantime, he's got to talk about this reality of the fact that the fact that they still exist that God chose them and that God has, has retained them and kept them where they are is proof of God's love. And there's still more proof to come. Yeah. So his, his God's response to how have you loved us is basically you exist. <laughs> yeah. And all of that, then he says, so, you know, he, he says really, how dare you, I think would be an indignant um, kind of, that's how I would feel anyway, if I got that response. Um, but then all, he, he talks about all of this about Edom, and it leads to this conclusion in the end, in verse 5, that Yahweh is great beyond the borders of Israel. So I think the, the other point that he's trying to make here is to, I guess, try to expand their vision of him. Uh, and this theological understanding that God is bigger than Israel is foundational to you know, the various different negative and positive motivators that we're going to find uh, throughout the rest of the book. And it also points just to that universal nature of the gospel and, and the mission of God. Uh, and in Psalm 67, 1 through 7, uh, we can see, uh, I assume this is a Psalm of David. Um, David, or whoever the psalmist was, got, got this concept because, uh, just listen to this. May God be merciful and bless us. May his face smile with favor on us. May your ways be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. Let the whole world sing for joy because you govern the nations with justice and guide the people of the whole world. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. Then the earth will yield its harvests and God, our God, will richly bless us. Yes, God will bless us and people all over the world will fear him. So God's love is demonstrated to Israel in the fact that he chose Jacob to draw him to himself and to use him to bless the nations. That Abrahamic covenant uh, would be fulfilled through the line of Jacob. And God's love is demonstrated to you and me in that he chooses to love you and me, even though we ultimately are just as rebellious and wicked in our hearts as the nation of Israel ever was. And Romans 5.8 uh, makes that point by saying, but God showed his 
great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So he sent Jesus to die for our sins, which, you know, going back to that idea of a legal case, that was a legal case where we were condemned, much like Israel was, and yet the Son of God took the punishment upon himself that we deserve to get. And 1 John 4.10, again, uh, says, This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So the, the burdensome message, the bad news that we have today is that we have all sin. We've all disobeyed, we've rejected God, and yet the hope that we have, it's not in our own circumstances, it's not in how we feel in any given moment, it's the reality that God loves us and that he gave his son for us. And it's my prayer that all of you have experienced that love today, but I encourage you to, to ask yourself, are you still claiming that, that God cannot be loving or that he can't love you, or are you judging God based on your circumstances or feelings. I think that's something, even when you have accepted God's love, that's something that you can wrestle with back and forth throughout your life. Uh, but God's love is, is real. It's eternal. He's, he loved you and me enough to send Jesus to earth to die for our sins so that if we simply believe in him, if we acknowledge that we are indeed rebels and that God is loving and just and that Jesus took the punishment for our rebellion, that we can experience life and hope and renewal as the children of God. So one more verse, a classic, John 3.16, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So even though we're in the prophets and we're in the Old Testament, this is ultimately the story of the prophets. It's the story of the whole Bible. And it can be your story uh, if you're willing to, to call out to God. Uh, and, you know, a simple prayer like, God, I know I am a rebel. I know I've rebelled against you. I'm a sinner. And up to this point, maybe I've rejected you. Um, or even, you know, I've gone through a season of rejecting you. But today I come to you and I just ask you to forgive me and to accept me as your child, knowing that it's not because I've done anything to deserve it but because Jesus died for me, for my rebellion and my disobedience, and I want to make a covenant today to live, to honor you, and to spend my days living with you uh, and for you. Um, and that's all it takes. You are accepted and you are loved. Uh, so that's, that's the beautiful message. That's the good news, and that's the hope that we have in Christ. So why the prophets? Because the prophets remind us of not just the brokenness of Israel and not just their need for a Messiah, but the brokenness of mankind um, since the very beginning and all of our need for a Savior. And by missing out on the prophets, it's very easy to become uh, arrogant or to become disillusioned, to become rebellious. And in the end, what God wants us to do is to become broken and contrite in our hearts, to become humble. Uh, one of the other prophets, um, Micah, said, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you 
but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And our God has wanted to walk humbly with us since the very beginning. And yet we've rebelled against that. And so today, if you've never prayed that prayer, um, it's, it's our hope and it's our prayer that you would. And if you have prayed that prayer, I guess the question is this, um, are you judging God's love by your circumstances? Are you looking at your, your health? Are you looking at a pandemic? Are you looking at your job situation? Are you looking at finances? Are you looking at your circumstances and questioning the goodness of God? Or do you recognize that he is a loving father who takes care of you and provides for you and everything that he does has a reason. And uh, I think there are times where we are much like Israel, where we rebel and turn from him. And he, he calls out to us through his word and says, listen, you can still return. You can still come back. Let me remind you of what's wrong, what's going on in your heart. And you can still come back and I'll still embrace you and I'll still call you my children. And so it's our prayer that that would be true for each one of us. And that on a daily basis, we'd be willing to recognize the brokenness um, that we have and our need for him. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that all of us are in need of saving, that all of us are in need of rescue, and that all of us need to have our hearts and our minds restored constantly to be in line with you and to be walking with you. We thank you for uh, the reminder this morning of your amazing love, that, that your love is not um, what we see in our circumstances, but that your love is an everlasting and unconditional love. We thank you for choosing us, uh, those of us that have accepted uh, Christ as our Savior. Uh, forgive us for the times that we doubt your love and teach us how to love you more. Forgive us for our rebellion and teach us how to be uh, obedient. Father, forgive us for the times that we have broken our covenant with you because we know that you have never broken your covenant uh, with your people, with us. So we thank you for these reminders of how great you are, and we praise you for your amazing work, as we are reminded we're called to do, and just uh, pray that through our lives, as we continue to study about you and live for you, that the nations around us would see you and also be drawn to you and to praising your name. Father, we live for your kingdom, and for your honor, and for your glory. Amen.